I'd like to welcome everyone to today's broadcast of Truth. Today's guest, we have Captain Christopher Moore, Chris Moore, with the Chesapeake, Virginia Fire Department. Chris is going to explain his travels into his 30-year career in the fire department, what led into that. You know, he was in the Navy and started with being the volunteer uh, fireman. And then also his struggles, what kind of led into the PTSD, his ways of dealing with that. We'll talk about his service dog, Lewis, and just different ways that, you know, the PTSD, PTSI expands beyond just the first responder realm, how it hits all of us, including especially the families as well, too. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Michael. How are you, sir? I'm blessed. Very and good. so while in the Navy, what sparked your interest into volunteering for the fire department? Well, I actually don't mean to correct you, but uh, it, it wasn't the Navy I was in. It was a, a company, a Department of Defense company called the Navy Exchange. Oh, uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's what threw me off. I apologize. I apologize. I'm so not a veteran. Never served in the military. God bless our veterans and everything. We wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now without them providing us our freedoms. But uh, yeah, okay. I was never in the military. Thank you for that correction. Yes, sir. My, my apologies. But what did bring me to um, the, the public safety uh, world is my father. Um, he passed away um, almost 20 years ago. He was a, uh, a police officer. And I just remember that that sense of pride of my, my dad being a servant to the community and uh, just uh, everything about that was was great growing up as a uh, son of a police officer, looking up to him and seeing how he dealt with the community positively and made an impact. And I knew that was something that I wanted to do as I got older. Initially, when I was a little kid, I liked the trash trucks and I wanted to be a trash man. But go figure the two kind of go hand in hand now, law enforcement and trash, uh, public safety in general. So um, I really got a uh, got a lot out of it and a lot of respect for my dad with what he did. And it really stuck with me. And we actually uh, he was a, a police officer in a neighboring city, Norfolk, Virginia. And I'm a firefighter in Chesapeake, Virginia. And uh, in public safety, you get assigned a badge number. And I just so happened to get the exact same badge number that my dad had in the Norfolk Police Department. So uh, my fire chief found out about that and he just gave me a big letter and everything and told me to leave a legacy and, and everything. And that's what I intend on doing is leaving a legacy and uh, not only helping my community, but honoring my father and everything too. Amazing. That's, that's I mean, there's no other word but fate for that one, you know? I mean, it's, yes. I mean, it's like it was handpicked out. It's just about, you know, the chances of life, how it you know, brings everything together like that. Yeah. And now with your father being in law enforcement, so how old were you when your father was in law enforcement? Uh, since I was uh, a child, baby, yeah. since I was born. Okay. And the, re uh, well, the, re the reason I'm bringing that up is because, you know, as we talk about PTSD, we also talk about how it affects families. So, you know, from a very young age, you were kind of exposed to the different hours and the different demands that the careers actually, you know, put on to, you know, individuals such as yourself and the active careers and how it affects the family and things like that as well, too. Would you say that's correct? Or Oh, yeah, definitely. It's very, um, not complaining one bit, but it's very straining to families. Uh, when people are home with their, their loved ones on uh, yeah, Christmas coming up. 
I'm going to be working Christmas Day. So you just learn to adapt and overcome and everything. So we've always done uh, growing up, our uh, son would have Christmas Day on Christmas Eve. Uh, I had to work on Christmas and miss ball games and stuff like that. Uh, you get very uh, uh, sleep deprived is, is a major problem within the public safety community. And uh, on average, we get less than six hours of sleep, especially more so in the fire department than the police department. But um, huh. at six hours of sleep or less, you are 200% more likely to die of a heart attack. And so we uh, we are very bad off with, with what we do to ourselves because then we, we turn around in every police station. And I know I'm kind of getting off, off track here just a little bit from your We're question. Not- no, you're not. Because I was about to bring up holidays because holidays and the timing for having you on this show couldn't have been better because you know, as we go on in this broadcast about PTSD, the effects of family, holidays coming up, it is so vital because this is an important topic and holidays is one of those extreme times to where it's a trigger for so many with PTSD and it causes PTSD for so many with the stresses of not being around family and things like that. So. Yeah, and that's when when my father passed. It was uh, the day after Thanksgiving, oh, wow. and uh, I had just so happened to be. It was when uh, in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina and Rita hit uh, Louisiana, and I was in Louisiana for almost a month uh, doing recovery work with the fire department. And as soon as we got back, it was the day before I was supposed to come home. Uh, we were leaving Louisiana, driving to Houston, and uh, cell phones started working when we got closer to Texas. And I got a phone call that my father had passed away unexpectedly. And uh, they got me on an emergency emergency flight back that day. And um, that makes Thanksgiving a lot harder. My wife's birthday was this, uh, the day after that he had passed away also. And um, it just it made for a very difficult time. And then with uh, my wife really contributes that to a lot of um, the beginnings of my PTSD per se, um, just the, the guilt and shame and everything that I felt for not being around when my dad passed away, but I had no no inkling that it was going to happen that way. Um, with my work-related PTSD in the holidays, it always gets um, more heightened and uh, triggering at times. Uh, we've had many of calls have uh, come up around the holidays, but um, the calls that uh, affect me most are just like probably 99% of us are children. And uh, I've had many of those. That's actually what my um, uh, call that put me over the edge was a child. And that was back in 2017. It was actually, um, we're, we're coming up on an anniversary of it on a uh, five-year anniversary. It was January 17th or January 9th, 2017, when we had a pediatric cardiac arrest. And I like to describe PTSD in the first responder world as our, our heads are like a bucket. So everything that we do and that we see, be it positive and or negative, goes into that bucket. So if we don't have some kind of healthy means of a, a coping mechanism that's healthy to expel some of that stuff that's getting put into that bucket to comprehend it and and deal with it, we're going to explode. And I never knew any of this stuff until 
uh, actually it was well after that January 9th, 2017, that was what overflowed my bucket. Uh, that call right there was a pediatric cardiac arrest. The child didn't make it. Um, shortly after that, uh, things have just started going spiraling downward and out of control for me. I had no idea what was going on, what was transpiring. To be honest with you, I thought that I was going crazy. And I never dealt with PTSD, never really knew what PTSD was. I thought um, it was something mostly for the, the military, like we had talked about earlier. Shell shock. Um, yeah, I thought it was shell shock. Um, I didn't think that I could have it. Um, I, I, I did hear about it a little bit in the first responder community for uh, uh, police officers that and firefighters that had been <laughs> duty deaths or had near miss accidents. I wasn't involved in either of those. I wasn't a, a, a veteran. And um, I felt a lot of guilt and a lot of shame because I wasn't any of those and I didn't know what was going on. Um, this continued on for three months. To me, this is the greatest profession in the world, a member of the United States Fire Service. And after about three months, I was ready to, to quit the, the only thing that I've ever known. Pretty much like we talked about earlier with my father being a police officer, public safety has been my life since I was a child. And uh, here we are in, in, back in 2017, and that's still all I've ever known. And I'm about to just walk away from it because I, I thought I was losing my mind. We just so happened to be at a uh, awards presentation at one of our firehouses when uh, the fire chief, who has known me my entire career, picked up on something wasn't right. And um, he, he just he's known me. He's got a way about himself where we're a 475 member department. But if he meets you, which he does when you come into the department, he remembers your name. He remembers your family, he remembers everything about you. So he might not see you again for months at a time, but he remembers you. And he knew something wasn't right with me. So he said, we're going to talk. Well, we had the award ceremony and everybody went about their way. The next day when I was off duty, um, self-medicating with alcohol, that was one of my, my things that I had started doing in those three months since. And uh, I received a phone call from his uh, secretary and he wanted to take me out to lunch. And I was, uh, I was a lieutenant at the time. I was coming up for captain and uh, I told them, no, I couldn't make it. I had something to do. And uh, you never tell the fire chief, no. I got off the phone and realized that. I was like, I just did career suicide. I'm going for promotion and uh, I shouldn't have done that. So I instantly called my wife up who knew something was going on, but she didn't know specifically what was going on. And uh, I told her about it and she's like, you need to get back on the phone with them and tell them you changed your schedule and go to lunch with the fire chief. So she gave me a swift kick in the tail and I got on the phone and I made those changes and made it happen. Well, um, once there at lunch, it wasn't fire chief to Lieutenant. It was Chris to my chief's name is Ed, Chris to Ed. And uh, he encouraged that and uh, it made things so much better when I could speak openly without any repercussions or anything and just open up and tell him how I feel and what I'm going through. And a couple of things he relayed to me, probably the most important thing is to utilize my family. He had met my family before he knew them and he found out that I never in 
um, at this time over 20 some years in the fire service, I never once would come home and talk about work. Not once. I'd be gone 24 hours at a time and come home. My wife's getting ready to go to work and I'm just coming in. You would think I would have a lot to talk to her about since I've been gone for 24 hours at a time. And she would ask me how my shift was. and I'd just be like, oh, it was the norm or the usual. I wouldn't talk about any of the calls, be it good or bad that I saw. Lewis is picking up. I'm getting a little stressful and everything right now. So he's picking up on that. But um, I would never, never discuss anything with my family. I was just bottling everything inside. I wouldn't discuss it with friends. Uh, as first responders, we have dark senses of humor. And we would discuss it amongst ourselves at the kitchen table. We solve a lot of problems at the kitchen table in the firehouse. But we're some, uh, some sick people with uh, how we deal with it and talk about things. And the general public just wouldn't understand. And uh, the fire chief encouraged me to start talking to my wife, to my son, being open, being honest with them. Uh, don't just tell them the good stuff, but tell them the bad. Tell, tell my wife when I had a call that bothered me. Uh, pick up the phone when I've just run a pediatric cardiac arrest and I'm in tears and, and hurting real bad and just want to hear their voice and let them know what's going on. And he, uh, he also told me to believe in my faith. If I'm a faith-based follower, which I wasn't so much at the time, I was really questioning my faith, to go ahead and, and do that. Follow my faith a little bit more and dig into that aspect of stuff. And it, it really helped out tremendously. <coughs> I didn't reach out and get any help or therapy or counseling. That was my my therapy and counseling. I came home uh, that evening and uh, spoke with my wife and started opening up with her. And I thought everything was going better at the time, but it really wasn't. I was fooling myself. Um, I was doing much better, but uh, things still weren't right. So um, that kind of went on for over a year uh, it brought us to um uh, july of 2018 i was going through the motion still i was still hitting the bottle and uh doing a lot of things i shouldn't have i, I developed vices with my ptsd like i said I, at this point i still wasn't formally diagnosed or anything um, but we attributed back to that um so i was hitting the bottle was one of my vices um sex and intimacy was another vice Food was a vice, and spending money that I didn't have was another big vice. So I'm doing all that for over a year now. We're in July of 2018, we had a uh, major fire with uh, children trapped inside, a report of children trapped in there. And uh, once we arrived on scene, I was the, the captain on the, the first due engine. And uh, we were told that they had gotten the children out. However, we don't always take people for their words. We still go in and do a search. And uh, we were doing that. And I'll never forget during the middle of the search, the mother showed back up at home because she had been gone, left the kids unattended. And I heard her screaming from, I was inside the house. I could hear her screaming from, from outside the house that her baby was still in there. So one of my firefighters ended up finding the baby who was lifeless and carried the baby out to the, um, the paramedics that were waiting and uh, rushed the baby to the hospital and everything. We had no idea. This is like what you and I had talked about earlier. We often know the beginning and the middle of the story, but we don't ever know the ending. And uh, you just think of the worst and, and everything. 
uh, we wrapped up the job there, went back to the firehouse and our, uh, we have peer support within our department. I'm actually a member of that. And, uh, a lot of my brothers and sisters that were part of the peer support team were at my firehouse. They were there for all of us. They brought us food, told us to stay out of service, get cleaned up, get a shower and, uh, just try and get yourselves comfortable. We're here. If you want to talk, they don't force it on you or anything like that. They just let you know that we are here for you. We're, we're taking care of you with some food and stuff like that. Well, um, I did exactly what we preach against. I clammed up and I shut down. I did not want to talk to them. Didn't want to do anything. I was just picturing this lifeless baby, um, and the life that we couldn't save. Um, God bless God and everything. We found out later on, um, way later that night that the baby actually lived. So they, they got a pulse back on the child and the child survived and he's actually still alive to this, this day. Um, but we didn't know that at the time. And I was, I was doing very bad. That really pushed me when I got home, pushed me over the edge once again, where I got worse than I was back in 2017. I started drinking a lot more, uh, started pulling away from, um, not just my friends, but my family. I would self-isolate myself. I got where I didn't want to go out in public. Um, I was just getting so anxious and um, uptight with, with everything. Uh, I would found myself at times kind of snapping with people. Um, one of the things that I think is the, the worst possible question, you better not ask me this, is um, that you can ask any first responder, is what's the worst thing that you've ever seen? And why in the hell would I want to relive or talk about the worst thing that I've ever seen? And um, people do that. They they think that we see a lot of cool stuff. They think it's cool. People cool. that don't, don't deal with it and experience it and everything. And they don't know any better. God right. bless their hearts and everything. But um, it, it's really tough when somebody asks you that question, especially a loved one or a, a close friend or uh, even a, a stranger that you meet out somewhere when they find out that you're a first responder. And uh, I know they don't mean any ill will with that, but it just it's something that always irked me. And I, I got to the point where I got afraid of that question being asked. And that was one reason why I pulled away. So a couple months later, I'm rock bottom. My wife remembers I had a mentor in the fire department. He was a, um, or is a battalion chief. And uh, she remembers me talking about him saying that he had a number for a therapist that works with first responders. And I like to use the words nagging. My wife doesn't like that too much, but um, she likes to say that she strongly encouraged me over and over and over and over again to get that number until I finally did. But getting the number and using it, two totally different things. So I sat on that number for probably about another month before one day, Something just told me, make this phone call. So I made the phone call to the therapist, and then it, it felt like eternity on the other end when he answered the phone until I could get words to come out of my mouth. But in reality, it was just silence for probably about 15 or 20 seconds um, until I finally got words out of my mouth. And the two words I got out of my mouth were help me. And I can't imagine what the guy, the, the therapist on the other end of the phone was thinking when he first has the silence and then he just, he just hears a grown man's voice saying, help me. But uh, we carried on a conversation briefly over the phone with what we could. 
and we um, we figured out a a time and a um, date that worked best for us, where I could get into his office and and meet him, and we could start discussing things and seeing what's going on with me. So, when that day finally came, I was scared to death. I did my normal isolation. Uh, I was drinking during the day, but uh, I almost blew off the appointment because in my mind, therapy and counseling is like what you used to see on TV where I'm going to be laying on a sofa, leather sofa. He's going to have a pipe in his mouth. I'm going to be talking about childhood traumas or whatever. And I was just scared to death of that. Just thought it was going to be something stupid and corny like that. However, I made the one of the best decisions ever in my life besides making the phone call was showing up to the, the appointment. And, uh, it was great. It was just like you and I right now it was uh, two guys carrying on a, a conversation, sharing my stories, how am I, I'm feeling, what I'm going through. And it was at that time that I was formally diagnosed with PTSD that was uh, work related to the job. It was uh, cumulative and everything that it, it, my bucket, like I said, just filled up everything accumulated and it filled up and it just overflowed because it was like from talking to him and experiencing stuff, it was as if Pandora's box had opened up and calls that I never thought twice about that happened uh, in 2005. And here we are in 2018. I could tell you anything about this call that happened in 2005, um, the person's name and uh, where it happened and just everything. And I had nightmares about that call and other calls and everything like that, that I never, never really thought twice about. I was waking up every night with those and um, until I started getting the therapy. Once I started getting the therapy, we started going weekly and doing sessions and, and everything. I was encouraged to do a lot of journaling. Journaling really helped me out a lot. And um, it, uh, it really brought me some, some fulfillment. I wrote an article that was published in Fire Engineering Magazine and uh, just putting my words to paper really helped out tremendously. We went to, or I went to therapy with, with my counselor for a year until he had a um, unfortunate issue happen in his practice where he had to shut down. So he shuts down, my therapy stops. I'm almost to the point where I'm back to square one. I'm, I'm doing better, I can deal with things, but I know that I need this therapist to continuing on with, with my treatment. Uh, where I do live here in Virginia Beach, Virginia, is um, our Hampton Roads part of uh, the state of Virginia, is the largest military base uh, naval installation in the world. We have the Navy SEALs here and Army, Marines, you name it, we got it. With all the veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and dealing with their issues with PTSD, you would think that this area would have lots and lots of therapists that deal with PTSD. That's totally wrong. I don't know if it's like a, a taboo thing to deal with or to get into at the, the time, but I, I couldn't find anybody that dealt with um, either military PTSD or better yet, first responder PTSD, because I want somebody that understands me and right. knows my lingo and, and my talking and my feelings and everything like that. And, didn't just uh, read a book. Yeah, didn't just read a book or get a degree online from Grand Canyon University. It might be good, I don't know. But um, I want somebody who can, uh, 
relate to. And um, when I did finally doing Google searches uh, for a couple weeks, I would finally find somebody, but they wouldn't take my insurance. Then I found one that was taking insurance, but they weren't taking on new patients. So I was at my wits end. This was getting me even more stressed out. Um, I start drinking again, drinking more. And um, one day, just like things fell into place for me before, things fell into place again. Just something told me to Google search one more time. I found another therapist. I said, like, let me make a phone call for this. I got in touch with her and uh, found out that she does have some experience with first responders. She does um, work with PTSD. She does EMDR and EFT. And um, she got me in. She's like, I'll take your insurance. I'm going to get you in here and I'm going to start treating you. So uh, showing up to that first appointment was, um, was pretty tough, but I knew what to expect at this point. And I remember my first words that I said to her were, no offense to her, but I told her that therapists are like a pair of shoes. Here, It's not one size fits all. You might be able to deal with some of this stuff and understand it, but you might not be the right fit for me. And we might not have that, that click in that relationship. And she looked at me and said the exact same thing right back to me is that uh, I might not be the right fit for her. And if she doesn't feel she can help me, she's going to try and get me the help from somebody else. But, but we really hit it off. We did good. That's when I started doing EMDR therapy. Um, for those that don't know, that's the, uh, the eye movement. Uh, desensitization reprocessing uh, where you reprocess your your thoughts and your traumas and everything like that and um, try and store them in another uh, aspect or another part of the brain uh, that's more healthier for you if that's a, a thing but I uh, started going to, to see her and doing treatment with her and uh, things were going outstanding and um, it was shortly after that I uh, well, here, here comes again another trauma out of the blue, which um, that's one thing I, I think a lot of people, civilians more so, don't really understand. Um, a civilian is exposed to maybe one to five traumas in a lifetime, whereas a first responder, I can see one to five traumas in a 24-hour shift. I just got off this morning, and I saw three of them yesterday in 24 hours. But you figure that over a... Uh, 20 30 even some guys 40 year careers and all that much trauma it's going to get you so i was exposed to another trauma this time and um even though i'm with her getting therapy doing emdr it really stuck with me and was, was hurting me and she knew it and i i knew it but we were getting through it well when i do my speaking engagements i show a slide on my my presentation it has two pictures of me uh, one is a picture of my wife and myself where I'm smiling and happy. The other one is just a solo picture of myself where I'm, I'm smiling and happy. And this was right after that trauma. What I tell people in my presentation is you don't see the picture in the middle. Those pictures are three days apart. The picture in the middle that you don't see. Was when I was sitting there in my house with a gun in my mouth. I... Um, in therapy and everything, um, doing the right things, things are, are 
getting better and, and going well, this trauma really hit me and it took me right back again, even though I knew the things, the better coping mechanisms and stuff like that. Um, it was just really haunting me. And um, I didn't know what to do. I was at my wits end. And um, instead of doing like you're encouraged, pick up the phone and, and call your therapist or, or call one of the hotlines or something like that. Um, I just wanted to end my hurt and end my pain. But um, luckily, I sat there and uh, with the gun in my mouth still, and I thought about things. And I realized that suicide doesn't, it doesn't stop the pain. It stops my life, but it doesn't stop the pain. It just passes the pain on to somebody else. It's going to pass the pain on to my wife and my son and to my mother and my brother. And um, after looking at it, luckily, I was able to look at it logically like that and um, put the gun down. And uh, thank God I did. Thank God I'm here having this conversation with you today. And... Um, I share that story to let people know that you can, no matter how bad you're hurting and everything, you can overcome it. And we need to realize, and this is a, another blessing also that I didn't, I don't know where it came from at the time, but what just went through my head, all the crazy stuff I was doing when I had that gun in my mouth was, um, it just came out of nowhere about passing on the pain and not wanting to do that. And, um, that's what saved my life right there. I made a uh, made the phone call, got back into to therapy sooner than uh, a week, and um, continued going on. And everything has been great since I had that that moment. That was my uh, uh, one of my defining moments right there. And that it has to deal with therapy and with suicide and and everything. I I, I just can't thank um, my therapist enough or getting me to that point, getting me through that point and moving uh, forward with everything. And we really, uh, we do a lot of great work. I've actually just um, used the, uh, the term kind of graduated where we kind of have pulled away a little bit now and we're not going to as much therapy sessions. We're not doing weekly. We're doing the EMDR as much as we, we had been figured I'm in a, a good spot right now where we can kind of start backing off some and that's what we're doing. Uh, and another thing I know you guys saw coming up over here right now, uh, Lewis is um, my, uh, my therapist and I, we had found a uh, service dog company in the state of Virginia here. They're out of Charlottesville, Virginia, and they do dogs for um, all sorts of disabilities and PTSD is a disability. And um, we looked into it. They trained dogs for veterans and they were starting to training for first responders. And we figured we would give it a try and look into them and see what uh, we could come up with. They actually do a very thorough vetting process to make sure that you're legit and uh, you're not just trying to get a dog for free. <laughs> and um, we went through the process, which took, um, about eight months to uh to get everything finalized and get approved and i had to have my doctors and my therapists and everybody do paperwork and turn over medical records i had to sit in front of panels and everything like that but i finally 
and um, it was August of 2020, I finally got Lewis and went up to Charlottesville and trained with him for two weeks and uh, was uh, awarded Lewis. Lewis actually comes with me to the firehouse. Uh, he does not run on the, uh, the calls with me on the fire engine, but I know that if something triggers me when I'm on a call, when I get back, Lewis is going to be right there for me. He does a lot of pressure therapy and uh, things like that to really help me out and help relieve and um, help me decompress after uh, lots of um, traumatic events and, and calls. It can even be things now that aren't necessarily as traumatic, but it's just something that, that brings my mind back. Um, that call that uh, I had right before the, the suicide um, attempt or uh, ideation was um, a real bad motor vehicle accident with fatality. And now I get triggered when I see motor vehicle accidents. It was a, a fire with that motor vehicle accident where somebody burned up. And uh, I still, not that often, but when we do get fire calls, if um, there's the smell of uh, flesh burning or anything like that, not to be too um, grotesque or anything, but um, that really triggers me and which I'm sure that would trigger anybody in any case, but uh, more so because of that incident that I'd had back in uh, October of 2018. So um, I told you how I started doing a lot of journaling with my first therapist. My second therapist wanted to continue on with the, uh, the journaling and anything that would, would help me um, with that. I had written the article that was published in Fire Engineering. Uh, we knew that I had a, a bigger um, calling because we looked at a lot of my stuff as as being a calling from um, becoming a first responder in the very beginning to um, the point where I had the, uh, the, the voice or whatever tell me to pull the gun out of my mouth because I didn't want to pass that pain on. So we knew that there was bigger and other things that I could do out there to help others. And I, I've gotten into uh, public speaking. So I um, went out to Dallas, Texas last year and spoke over two days at a conference to first responders. It was uh, Leo's firefighters, dispatchers. And uh, really, that was my my first big event that I spoke at and got a lot out of it. It was as thera uh, therapeutic for me as it was uh, to helping them. And it became even more therapeutic afterwards when I had those same people that I spoke with over two days reaching out to me and telling me what a difference I made to them and that I wasn't the Lone Ranger and that they knew that they weren't the Lone Ranger now, that they were having a lot of these feelings and didn't know what they were. And me sharing my story opened up to them that, hey, I can feel like this. This this is what I'm going through right now. This guy hit the nail on the head right here, and he's doing good now. So he said that if if I reach out and I get the help and deal with EMDR and EFT, do journaling, which what works for me might not work for somebody else, but that's, that's the stuff that really helped out. It, it really gets you started if you find that right counselor, right therapist or whatever that can really point you in the right direction for help. And um, I had these guys and girls coming up to me and, and just telling me all of that. 
and it was just a tremendous feeling. So I was like, damn, I want to do this again. So I, I've gotten into it. Um, I uh, am speaking now with first responder conferences and uh, Sean Thomas, she's out of the uh, Seattle, Washington area. She's a, um, a sheriff, sheriff's deputy out in Washington state. And she puts these conferences on nationwide. We actually, as uh, you and I had discussed, uh, we have one coming up. I'm speaking at in Jacksonville, Florida, January 13th and 14th. And uh, it's going to be a, a big event there with, um, uh, 100 to 200 first responders are going to be present over those two days that we'll be sharing our stories with. It's going to be about uh, 10 to 12 speakers, I believe. And we just uh, put our stuff out there. It's anywhere from mental health, behavioral health to financial health and wellness. Uh, there's uh, spouses of firefighters that have lost their life in the line of duty that talk to it, um, talk to others there. And when we have these conferences and when we do them, just like the one that uh, you and I are going to be attending in Chicago in March, is it's also strongly encouraged that you bring your spouses with you. So we talked about uh, at, at the beginning of this, kind of got, I got sidetracked going right into my story and everything, but you were asking about the family aspect of, of things. And um, at the same time, before that, we, you and I were talking about dispatchers being the forgotten ones. Well, family is also a forgotten aspect of all of this as well. I didn't see it so much when it was my father when I was growing up. But looking back at it now, I do see a lot of the signs and symptoms of the PTSD that I have were in my father. And um, realizing now, I wish... God, I, I pray that I could go back in time and um, exploring my faith and everything now. When my time does finally come, I can't wait to see my father again and talk to him and just ask him, Dad, were you going through this or whatever? And I'm sure we're going to have a great conversation and be like, yes, son, I was. But um, the, the family aspect of it, my wife actually wrote an article on, uh, on the family aspect of it. Hers was also published. She likes to brag because her article was published a couple months before mine was in Fire Engineer, Engineering Magazine. And um, her and my son described living with me as walking on eggshells. And they didn't know each time that I walked in the door that uh, what dad they were getting, what husband they were getting. If I had a good shift or if I had a bad shift, how they were going to be um, irritated or not. Uh, how easily agitated it was uh it was really a, a crapshoot how things were going to turn out each, each and every day but we had our normal stressors just like any married couple you know, would have um you have your finances and everyday life and stuff like that but then when you throw in the the first responder aspect of it and the stuff that we see and we deal with and the um the ptsd and the diagnosis of it Things had just gotten uh, really out of hand. Uh, many times uh, our marriage almost went to the brink of disaster and uh, ended. Uh, thank God uh, my wife stuck with me and, and dealt with me throughout all this. And once we finally got that diagnosis of the PTSD, it made things, it didn't give me an excuse to be an asshole, but it made things a lot easier 
for her to understand. It's like, now we have a diagnosis. We know what's going on. We know why dad was being a jerk at times, why he was pulling away at times and not being there all, um, for all things. And, um, they would want to go out and spend time with family and friends and dad would just want to stay home. I would want to be uh, left alone in bed and just sit in front of the TV or whatever. They walk out the room or out the house to go, go off. And I would crack open a beer and watch a football game or whatever. And uh, it was easier for me to do that. Well, once the PTSD diagnosis hit, they understood it. I started getting the help. They've actually have gone with me at separate times. My wife has gone with me to therapy, which um, we, I strongly encourage that. Um, our son, he's 16 now. He's gone with me to therapy sessions and, and met my therapist. And I talk openly and candidly in front of them, uh, just like I would when I'm there by myself with my therapist. And uh, you're, you're only going to get out of it what you put into it. And if you're not completely open and honest and trustworthy, then the therapist isn't going to be able to help you. And your family is not going to be able to help you. And uh, I mean, if I go there and I, I lie and say, yeah, everything's going great, I'm doing good or whatever, I'm not going to get anything out of it. And so um, it's not uncommon. Like I said, I was bringing my, my wife, my son to therapy. Um, my wife actually realized that, hey, I'm dealing with you. I'm worried about you at times, even though you're getting therapy. It still weighs on me on the back of my mind that not only do I have to worry about you're going out the door morning to a to work in a, a job that is very dangerous and, and risky that you're not going to come back from work i also have to worry about the fact with your ptsd that you might have a bad day or a trigger or something like that and it can throw you over the edge and you can end up with a gun in your mouth again so that that really weighs on her a lot well she was brave enough and strong enough to realize that and she actually found another therapist just for her and uh, that way, it's not a uh, conflict of interest seeing the same therapist for, for both of us. But we went to um, found a therapist and started having weekly sessions and, and everything as well. And uh, I, I never really thought about that until she did it. But that's something that I, I talk about and I share now. I think it's uh, very advantageous and beneficial to the, the family aspect where um, just like the person with PTSD is getting therapy and, and counseling. I think the family needs it, um, not just through my therapist, but maybe through their own private uh, therapist as well. And uh, where they can free up and really open up. And like I said, be honest and trustworthy and, and an open book, whereas they might not want to be as much of an open book um, with the same therapist as their spouse has. So, but it's been, uh, it's been a roller coaster ride. Uh, would I change my career? Uh, anything in it that's happened? Hell no, I wouldn't. Uh, we don't um, necessarily choose to be first responders. It chooses us. It's a calling. It's a passion to serve our communities. And uh, even with all the bad stuff that I've seen, the bad stuff that I've experienced, I wouldn't change it for the world. And like I said, not just being a first responder is a calling. I think it's calling for me to be here with you today and sharing my story. And when I go across the country and, and speak at these conferences, I think that's a calling just to, as, as much as uh, being a first responder and sharing that and making these differences. hundred percent, you know, and that's one of the things as well too, that, you know, 
this why I do this is because there's no way to smash the stigma if those that are really experiencing things don't come forward and say, hey, this is what I'm going through. This is what I have gone through. Because in training, you know, a friend of mine, you know, Chris Hoyer, he has the, you know, when that day comes training for the fight, the book. And it's when you look at everything, when we're in training, you know, they may tell you about things that you may experience in the job, in the career, but they really can't get you ready for what you're really about to see on those days yeah. and things like that. Whereas, the, you know, they, they don't train you how to, to process, you know, that that's something that will never become muscle memory to where when you just see something that just goes to the back of your mind, like, okay, hey, that's going to happen again. <laughs> hey, Michael, that's, that's one thing. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, my wife and I are looking at starting something in our fire department where um, we used to have, when I first came in years and years ago, um, when you were in the, the recruit school, they had one evening when you got out of school, you went to one of the fire stations and it was some of the older, um, more seasoned veteran firefighters were there with their spouses. And they just talked about, um, you had to go to this and you had to bring your significant other or a family member with you. And they talked to the family about it. They didn't necessarily talk about what you're going to see or what you're going to do. They just talked about how the crap's going to hit the fan while your loved one's away. When a hurricane's coming and everybody's evacuating or a snowstorm's coming, your family member, your firefighter is going. They're going to work. They got to be there. They can't evacuate when the family's evacuating. So my wife and I want to take that a step further. We, we had totally gone away from that. They don't even do that at the academy anymore. But we're, <laughs> we're going to try and set up a, a plan where we go down, we have a family day at our fire academy. And I'd rather do it towards the beginning of the academy than towards the end, because I want these kids, and that's what they are. They're, they're kids coming into the fire service now to, to know exactly what they're getting into so it doesn't shock them, scare them, or startle them when they have their first bad call. But I want the family to know also. So we want to do a family day, and my wife and I both want to do a brief presentation uh, have a, a candid conversation like you and I are having here with their family members and let them know, hey, be there for them. This is the stuff they're going to see. And in their normal civilian world, they would see, like we talked about earlier, one to five in a lifetime. They're going to see that in the first month on the job, so maybe the first shift. But we want to do all that and, and try and make things better here, start out a, a model here in uh, the Chesapeake, Virginia Fire Department that hopefully uh, can move uh, around our region and then maybe be nationwide. I haven't really heard of any other uh, departments doing something um, quite like this. I, I know we usually do um, a stress first aid class for them, but we don't do it for the families. And I think that's that's going to be very important for the families to uh, get the aspect of it. And one final um, piece of that is I, I want to take it a, a step further and for therapists and, and counselors. Uh, how I was telling you, it was so hard for me to find a therapist or counselor that dealt with first responders. I want to just go and find therapists and counselors, and I want to introduce them to the first responder community. Um, I haven't expanded this, my thought process with yet to Leo's yet, but with uh, as far as firefighters go, I want to do a, a two-day boot camp, and I want to have the, the therapist sign up. They come in. We go over like the, the first half of the day, fire department lingo and 
Um, this is what this means when we say this or do this or whatever. Have lunch, come back and put them through a, a burn building through some simulations. Just see what we go through dragging heavy hose and wearing our heavy gear and everything like that. How that stresses your body too. And then the next day, I want to assign them to a fire station to sit around the kitchen table with the guys and just not to counsel us or be therapist to us, but to just be a, uh, a, a bystander there and see how we interact, what we talk about, what we go through. And I want them to sign, I guess, non-disclosures where if that dark sense of humor comes out around the kitchen table or wherever, that it's not going to offend them or, or anything like that, that they could actually use this as, as real life uh, training and, and motivation to better help us and to, to serve us. Well, that's another thing that I'm, slowly working on right now to implement into our department and it takes one to make things happen you know i mean and especially on a national level because you know a i mean regardless of departments having let's say peer support you know i mean a and it's it's one of those flip of the coins it's a two-fold aspect where yes it's important for us to have peers that you know are open about the things that they face to make us comfortable about coming out in the first place but in the same sense, it's just why, you know, a lot of people don't admit that they're having problems because it's the, the shaming aspect in the department to where whether it be promotion or whether it be my chief captain, anybody, my, my superior in general, if I say, hey, I, you know, I, I just can't process what happened today, you know, and then, well, hey, are you still fit for the job? Now you're talking to psych or, you know, I, 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 the list goes on, you know, so a lot of individuals that really are being bothered by you know, whether it be the PTSD or, you know, early stages of PTSD, individuals that otherwise could have that addressed, it progresses, it progresses, it progresses, you know, as you, you know, admitted in regards to just carrying it, carrying it, carrying it for that year, all of a sudden, you know, gun in mouth. Now it's like, well, hey, I'm at my wit's end. I never realized, like, like you said about the one from 2005, that, you know, you just have that as memory and recall name and instance and everything, you know, and a lot of us don't realize that that's really weighing us down. And until individuals, you know, actually step up and do that and actually having a therapist that you can see off grounds, but then bring them in there to expose them to, like you just said, you know, day to day activities, you know, even individuals that may be able to relate to you actually coming in there and actually seeing that day to day, it affects that. And it's especially important for, you know, new cadets, regardless of what first responder field the cadets are going into, you know, they say about like the ride alongs and things like that, but if the ride along that took place was them just doing, you know, stopping at local businesses and things like that, and, you know, kicking the shit, they really didn't get that shock value that I feel that every first responder needs to have. I mean, it's, I don't like to say that everybody should have to go see a tragedy, but it's not a question of an, it's not an if, it's the when. And I mean, you're yeah. going to see a tragedy sometime in your career. If you're looking for this to be your career long term, you're going to see a tragedy. So now what has to happen is, hey, how am I going to be able to process this once it does happen? Though? You know, what do we have available? Do we have counselors available that, you know, Captain Chris has brought in for us that, you know, expose themselves and talk to, reach out to if we need to? Or is it strictly just peer support? Well, now do I feel comfortable just talking to my peers? Because of the shaming aspect, are they going to deem me unfit to, you know, serve my community, unfit to serve my, or, you know, uphold my role? So there's yeah. so many different factors of why people don't actually speak up and say, hey, this shit is bothering me. And it's vital that we have individuals like yourself and actually taking the steps forward to make sure that, you know, others are, A, comfortable about admitting that, hey, everything's not okay. 
and then B, actually doing the resources, whether it's the journaling, whether it's being exposed to the therapist, as you, you know, said, especially bringing them in there, or even Pearson, you know, so, but all of it's irrelevant if we don't first address the issues that it's okay to say we're not okay, so. Yeah, and, and that's um, one of the things also um, with Lewis, when I went to, uh, started addressing the issue of getting a service dog. I was like, a service dog goes with you everywhere. I was like, he's going to come with me to work. And one of the things that actually um, I was hesitant about pursuing this was because not a whole lot of people at this point knew my journey, my background. I'd been published in Fire Engineering Magazine. Um, I've done some some speaking. But I haven't really advertised it to within my department a whole lot. It's easier. That's a cute me. dog you have there, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's easier for me to uh, to address it to total strangers than it is to my peers. I'm a member of my peer support team now. I do a lot with them, but um, I just didn't know how it would go over. I was like, if I get a dog, the cat's going to be out of the bag. Everybody's going to know. <laughs> so I, I talked to some people and I really put a lot of heart and uh, thought into it. And I was like, you know what? I go, if people want to talk shit about me because I have a service dog and I have a disability of PTSD, at least they're talking about it. That's getting the, the conversation started. If they don't want to deal with me, then that's fine. That's not somebody I want to deal with anyhow. But at least they're talking. It could be negative or it could be positive. But at least they are talking about behavioral health. We're getting the ball started with that. So um, well, I went ahead. One of the ones pointing the finger and – you know, having the, the negative things to say, psychologically, the majority of people that point fingers or have something negative to say about another individual's, they themselves are actually really experiencing some of the things that you're actually having the courage to address yourself. That's a yeah. fact. I've had some of them come up to me, some of the, the people that you would least expect. And, and that's the, the crazy thing about it, is we see so many people in passing um, brothers and sisters in law enforcement and uh, public safety fire service. You pass in the hallways at headquarters or in your own firehouse, you see them. And you, hey, how you doing today? And they'll put a smile on their face and, oh, I'm doing good. And that's it. But they're really not. And I've had several of them come up to me. And that's why I like to, I've learned, I like to ask them a second time. So after I ask, how you doing? And they give me that answer. I usually like to wait about 15, 20 seconds like how are you really doing and really get that answer and let them know that hey i wasn't just asking that to make conversation with you i'm asking that because i, I truly care about you and i want to see what's best for you and find out how you and your family are doing uh, like i told you about my fire chief one of the terms that i use is he had his fingers on the pulse of his his members on the pulse of his department and I, I try and use him as a mentor with that and uh model myself after that and have my fingers on the as a captain of the fire service as a member of our peer support team i try and have my fingers on the, the pulse of my guys and my crew and everything like that and i really uh, believe that that makes a, a difference when you are there to um to, to show that uh that caring that thoughtfulness and everything is a part of who you are and it's not just some facade that's put up right there so one other thing, when we, we keep talking about peer support or mentioning it, um, that's the model that my department uses. I know um, 
My battery is running low. Um, we use a, um, a peer support model. I know probably about half the departments in the, the country, police or fire, sheriff, even dispatch, they'll use a uh, SISM. And as far as uh, SISM goes, if it works for you, it works for you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And SISM, my personal uh, two cents, it didn't work for me. And uh, I don't like how usually SISM, after the event, they take everybody and put you around in a circle. And they, um, they just go around the group and are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Well, I don't know where it started or how it began, but we all think we have an S on our chest at times. So when we're amongst our peers there in that group, we're asked that question, oh yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm great. Well, we're, we're not. And that's that stigma that we need to crush right there is that uh, we have this S on our chest and that we can't show emotions or, or anything in front of our peers. So, um, like I said, you would be surprised the number of peers if you just get them one-on-one -on -one that would tell you, you know what, like you, I'm hurting from that call. That child that got pulled out of that fire, that hurt me too. I feel bad. Uh, I've been having issues with it. I've been having nightmares. Um, they wouldn't say it in front of a group, but they'd tell you one-on-one, -on -one, I bet. And that's where that peer support model, that's where I really buy into that and, and believe that a lot. So you just you plant these seeds by doing that and eventually these seeds are going to grow and you're going to have a lot more um, feelers out there to help out with this. And especially in the instances of self-blame, you know, when we have calls that, you know, it's regardless if we could have done more, we're always going to question ourselves, could I have done more? You know, and, that, and that's where it takes that one to actually, you know, step up and say, hey, look, you know, this is bothering me right now. You know, so. Exactly. So you walk into the plug? Yeah, I'm going to the plug. Yes, sir. All right. There we go. Good to go. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 so vital. I mean, because again, it, it always takes that one, you know, because if, if somebody's like sitting there just in the compressions, just sitting there inside, but they don't know who to talk to or even how to bring it about. You know, it's the without someone like yourself, you know, waiting that 15 seconds and asking again, like, hey, know how you really doing? Because it's yeah. a, when we pass people at grocery stores, walking down the street, how you doing today? If an individual really stopped and said, oh, my God, I'm glad you asked. I'm having one of the worst days. I mean, how many of us would be like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry about that. Hey, I got I to go. You know, nobody wants to hear anybody else's problems. I mean, it, it's sad. It really is. You know, and it's, yeah. hey, one thing. So how far in? Did you also become a paramedic? I became a paramedic when I became career firefighter in um, 2000. I became a paramedic in 2001. Awesome. And then, and, and how much of how much of the paramedic side gets integrated in with the fire aspect? Uh, that's that's probably uh, EMS, emergency medical services, is about 80 percent of our job. Is uh, is that only? Less than 20% is, is fires. So, uh, but when they need us, we got to be there and be sharp and ready to go. But 80% uh, is all medical car accidents and, and traumas and stuff like that. So um, makes it pretty, pretty hard and pretty stressful. I can deal with, deal easier with cardiac arrests of adults. But when it's, when it's a, a child or, or something like that, it's just, it's just overwhelming at times. 
So and this is another important aspect of you know the dispatch aspect of it. You know, yeah. are there pre-existing conditions with this individual that I'm trying to save the life of? You know, are there different other factors that I need to be conscious of in trying to resuscitate? Or if you know, we try to, you know, do I need EpiPens or all? You know, there's so many different factors that you know the most information that you know dispatch is able to collect and pass on in the communication and things like that, which you know it's vital as well too. So, yeah. Hey, one other thing that we're working on trying to be proactive with uh, public safety and behavioral health and wellness is um, several years ago, we had the, the big hot topic. It still is now in the, the fire service is cancer. So we had um, several members in our department. It was actually about six or seven that were diagnosed with cancer. So when you get that diagnosis, where do you go? Nobody knows. You just your, your jaw just drops and you're like, holy shit, it's me. I got cancer and you don't know where to turn to or what to do or, or how to react or respond or just anything. Your, your world is just put in shambles. So we actually sat down and I, I uh, chaired a committee and we put together a book and it's, it's a manual we give, gave out to every single member of our 475 member department. Got this manual that we made up. It's what you do after the diagnosis, if you ever get it. And it was very well received, very helpful. And um, just people got a lot out of it. They, uh, we, like I said, we gave it to everybody. We hope they'd never have to use it, but it's there if you need it. We're working on something similar to that for behavioral health. So just signs and symptoms to look out for, things to do, um, uh, things to remain healthy throughout your career. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking at being proactive and putting a, a manual out similar to that. And uh, it's just firefighters, and I'm sure police officers are the same. Although you and I have been going at it now for an hour, we have short attention spans. And uh, I don't want the manual to be this thick. We <laughs> have something uh, very thin that's uh, easier for us to uh, address and comprehend. Well, you know, so, you're, speaking on, you're speaking on cancer. You know, a lot of individuals you know, are unaware that when 9-11 happened, <clears throat> excuse me, so like, you know, Tom Cruise and, you know, the, the, those that actually started Narconon, the reason that got created was because the first responders that were running into the buildings when 9-11 happened, they were like, you know, months, sometimes years later, they were experiencing withdrawal symptoms of like somebody that was on drugs because of the inhalation of the different you know, chemicals, the smoke and everything are in, people don't think about how damaging it is. I mean, even though you may be wearing respirators and things like that, there's so many different side effects that also, you know, can affect health long-term, you know, and, and I, I started thinking about that when you brought up about the cancer aspect of it, because it's one of those things, regardless of the preventative measures that fire, you know, that, that you do take, you know, there are instances on the spur of the moment to where it's the, you know, actions and just, you know, a couple seconds of breathing in, you know, monoxide or any other other chemicals, especially if it's a commercial fire and things like that, that could pose, you know, future health risks on individuals as well. So that's amazing. And then how far out is that book? Do you project? Uh, I'm hoping to have it done hopefully by the middle to end of next year. Like I said, I, I've gotten so much together. It's just a matter of I need to whittle it down and make it where it's going to be more usable, user friendly. And uh, that's just the hard thing because there's so much information you want to put in there and you want to cover, but you don't want to talk over people's heads. 
and uh, you want to keep it interesting where they they have and they utilize it. But our plan with that is to um, introduce it to every member of the department and to have one at least one copy in every firehouse and um, just have it there. Like I said, you know, I might give it to you right now and be like, oh, thanks, and you set it down. But I'm planting that seed. That's what we're doing is planting the seed. Eventually, you might be like, you know what? I remember Captain Moore gave me this book a little while ago. Let me you just take a look and see what it is. So that's that's what we're hoping at doing right there. And that's important. And, and, you know, kind of going back and, you know, piggybacking on the whole attention span aspect where, you know, you're making it where it's, it's readable for a lot of individuals. The toilet book, I call them. You know, yes. it's, uh, I always make the analogy that, you know, Medicare always send out like the, you know, the, they send out 497 page books that nobody's really going to, and then the medical jargon that's in there and the, the legalities that are in there, nobody reads that or understands that, you know, people know that, Oh, I can go to the doctor and get my meds filled if I need to and go to the hospital if I need to that, you know, 500 pages, you know, they qualify and they're actually, you know, entitled to so many other benefits, but it's the, somebody's going to read a 500 page manual. You know? It's just like, you know, just keeping it concise and kind of getting the point across, but, you know, planting the seed is the most important aspect of it. You know, kind of like what yeah. we and I are doing right now in regard to, you know, addressing the stigma and, you know, actually doing what we can, because if we don't talk about these things, others aren't going to know that it is okay for them to speak up about it as well too, and come forward about it and also be a vital resource like you and, you know, so many others are, you know, in this field, you know, especially for like the first responder conference and everything else as well too. You know, I look forward to seeing that conference grow and, you know, become more frequent than a lot of them are and everything else as well too. Yeah. And I, I commend you Captain Moore for, you know, sharing your story and everything else too, because without sharing your story, you know, especially a 30 year career and actually before that, actually, you know, I mean, realistically with your father, you know, actually being in law enforcement, you being exposed at a young age. I mean, you've been in this career in this field and been exposed to, you know, both sides of being family of first responder, being the first responder, having your own family of first responder. So, I mean, and you're a vital tool to so many on different, on so many different levels. And, you know, it's the, you know, I pray that it continues to you know progress forward, and and especially with the, uh, I love the idea about having the therapist going in and kind of doing that introduction into you know not only the you know, Chesapeake but you know nationwide really. I mean, it's yeah. especially for recruits or cadets coming in. I mean, it's the there there has to be some kind of shock value for them to actually know what it is that they're really really getting into. Like you said, oh, they watch TV and they watch Chicago Fire. Oh, yeah, hey, I'll go, I'll run out there and just have all this fun and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, get away. we may have the good times at the dinner table, but, you know, the stuff you're going to actually be exposed to and saying that, and, you know, kind of kind of what you, you touched on earlier about how people ask you, what's the worst thing you're saying? You know, when it's the, you know, why would somebody want to know that, you know, this morning I had to pull a baby out of a dumpster? You know, it's one of the things that it boggles my mind, too, is like, you know, how people like to hear just negative, like to hear trauma. It's, you know, America's Funniest Home Videos made a franchise out of, you know, other people's fallibilities. You know, yeah. it's just a, it's a sad story, really. It is, you know, and it's the you can you can post a positive message and, you know, you might get like 50 responses. You show a dog mounting a goat, all of a sudden 500 people are responding. It's like, oh, it's like. Yeah, people people just prey on other people's fallibilities and negatives and i'm trying to smash that aspect of it and and i commend you and i commend you and i commend you some more captain Moore. thank you 
always. And now, in regards to the, the conference, are you going to be speaking both days, or is that something that, or is there a set schedule yet, or? The, the conference in Jacksonville on January 13th and 14th, I'm speaking on the uh, 13th of January. I'll be there both days, but I'm speaking on the 13th. And then in uh, the conference in Chicago, where um, speakers are speaking both days on those, it's going to be breakout sessions. You know, and I, I love the aspect about family being there. Because again, it's the, you know, the coming home. How you doing today? I'm fine. Because, like you said, you know, you don't want to expose your family to the traumas that you've already done. And sometimes the, you know, our coping mechanism itself is to not talk about it. You know, so everything was fine and things like that. And you know, having them at the conferences and hearing, even if, even if it isn't the individuals themselves, just through attending the conference, just to kind of hear what everybody else has to say and kind of. They expose themselves, you know, indirectly by hearing somebody else say something like, yeah, and you're seeing, seeing the heads nod, yeah, that applies to me, that applies to me. And then also, you know, the family hearing that, you know, because then that may actually trigger that family member to kind of do that 15 second re-ask of how are you really doing today? You know, because it's, you know, families really don't. You know, they know that every day that, you know, you yourself, the Leos, any first responders go out there, you know, that that could be that day, you know. And, and I mean, nobody likes to think about that, about, you know, somebody coming up to the door to, you know, give them that notification or anything else like that. You know, the traumas that you yourself and every other first responder may be exposed to. A lot of family members don't know it. They just kind of take it from what it is because, again, watching TV, you know, they, they think of it like a TV show, but, you know, you, and so many individuals really don't know what's being exposed to and you know a dog getting hit by a car can do it for some and you know another one could be you know somebody jumping 50 stories from a building and i mean everybody has their own like limits you know and for anybody to walk around like you said earlier about the s on the chest it's just it's it's impossible for any of us to unless we're a sociopath and i mean we're essentially a sociopath would kind of be the fit for this career if you would say you know to where and maybe somebody that doesn't have any emotions or doesn't really have any kind of care but in the same sense if they didn't have that care or compassion or empathy or apathy for anybody else they would never select a career in the first place because they yeah. get too just less about that person lives dies or smiles or succeeds or anything else in between you know so is there anything else that uh we we gonna get a teaser for a future book about your uh Actually, yeah, we're looking at putting a lot of my journal stuff and uh, everything into a book. And uh, that's just pretty hard. Firefighters, like I said, we have short attention spans. So every time I sit down <laughs> and try and do something, I need to just get teamed up with the right person and uh, get somebody to help me put everything on my thoughts and, and stuff together. I Natalie don't think June Riley. I'm sorry? Natalie June Riley. Okay. <laughs> I don't think there'll be a made-for-TV movie or anything like that, but you never know. You know, sometimes though, and that's that's one of the kind of beauties. Like I was telling uh, Natalie, because she's the one that kind of did the editing and the constructing of Chris's book. That when that day comes, training for the fight, she's actually doing her own book right now about the love notes that she does. You know, and uh, it's sometimes being able to put it in a perspective of the reader themselves rather than us spilling everything on the pages. Like I have journals upon journals. It's yeah. one of the things like that's what the whole truth thing is, is the reality under the headline. You know, so many people say certain things, but what's that reality under there? And a lot of times that that 
the journal could have so much in it to where essentially each one could be a chapter. You know, those like leading up to the event that kind of drove you over the edge. Yeah. And then having the, the second part of the book being that, you know, coming to light and recognizing the fact that, hey, this is something that I do have to acknowledge and deal with now. And then, you know, third part on the ways that you've, you know, continued to maintain and, you know, still be able to deal with the new traumas that get stacked upon you every day. And I, I really encourage that because it's the, cause that would just be one more thing to go out there, you know, as you go in there training different, you know, new cadets or, you know, your own department or whether you go nationwide and things like that with it, it can kind of be the manual on doing so, you know, having different clips and things like that. Because, I mean, you know, one thing that's stuck with me through this whole broadcast was the fact of, you know, you and your wife having that picture of you smiling together and then, you know, you by yourself smiling together and, you know, people not knowing that three days in between where you had that gun in your mouth. You know, that's the that's the types of things that, you know, really cause that, create that shock value that make people say, hey, you know what, I, I need help right now. You know, yeah. so I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Hey, I look forward to seeing you in Chicago. Yes, sir. You're often down in Florida or you're out of Florida. So if you get a chance, you know, with us in Jacksonville and uh, come check what? it out. It's going to be a great conference down there. And uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of first responders and their spouses that we can really connect with. Yeah, I, I, I head up that way quite often, quite often, especially when I have a reason to. You know, then, I come up, uh, then I come up to Ohio, so I got to just kind of just bust that way and I'll uh, pop up there in <laughs> Virginia as well. So, but no, I mean, you're, you're a true blessing, Captain Moore. I, I commend you. I commend you when I commend you, and I, I beg you to, you know, keep maintain and then, you know, keep providing all the different knowledge, insight, and everything else as well too to so many others. Awesome. Thank you, you so much, Mike, for the platform. I appreciate it. Always, you stay safe and stay blessed in all things. I'm going to be a follow-up here when we get off here. All right. Thank you. Yes, sir. Stay blessed.